So we're concluding this morning what has turned out to be a seven-part series on the new birth, seeking to answer the question, what does it mean to be born again? Why is it necessary? What, what happens in the new birth? So we've looked at all these questions in these last two sermons, really been turning trying to ask the question, how do I know if I'm born again? What should I look for? What would the, what would the evidence be? Last week we were also in 1 John. We were talking about confidence. Good confidence to have. Maybe some presumptuous confidence that we ought not have. We talked about last week that if, if we continue in sin... If we continue to engage as a pattern in sin that we don't hate, that we don't struggle with, that we don't desire to be done with, then we prove ourselves, we provide evidence that we are not in fact born again. But on the other hand, that if we do practice righteousness as a pattern, as a, as a habit, as, as that's the thing that we're seeking to do and striving to do, then that Spirit-powered obedience over the long haul provides proof, provides evidence, and hopefully the confidence that we are, in fact, born again. And so one little side note as we conclude this series, I've listed there on the, the bottom of the outline in your worship folder all the texts that we've looked at in this series. And I'd encourage you to read back through them. Read back through them kind of for the sum total of what they they teach and of what they present for us. Maybe even uh, write them down in the back of your Bible just for a quick reference. That might come in handy for you uh, one day. So I'd encourage you to do that. As I looked back through those even this week, thinking about, all the variety of places that we've been in, in the Old Testament, in a gospel, in Paul's letters, in John's letters. I, I think it's given us a, a good comprehensive picture of what being born again means, of, of what the new birth is about. And I love how much overlap there was between those passages because it was a great example, once again, of how Scripture is its own best interpreter. Because if we had looked at any one of these passages alone, we might have been left scratching our heads on a couple of things. Well, gosh, what does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit, for example? But then when you look at some of these other passages, they they fill in the blanks, they they answer the questions that other passages raised. So uh, it's just another beautiful picture of of God's Word and how uh, rich of a resource it is and how uh, wonderful and deep of a grace it is to us. Now, on to today's text. Let's wrap this up. Uh, We're continuing to answer the question, how do I know? How do I know if I've been born again? And we'll see in in only five verses, a short little passage, four evidences laid out for us of how we can know if we've been born again. So I'd ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. This is 1 John chapter 5, the first five verses. This is the very Word of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's go to him in prayer together now. Father, I do pray for this passage in particular, that you would give us the assistance that we need in understanding it. And I pray for all of these passages in general that we've looked at, Lord, that you would uh, take the truths collectively and then comprehensively that we've looked at and you would solidify them for us in our minds and in our hearts uh, that we might know what it means to be born again. And Lord, I pray by the end of looking at this passage, uh, we might be able to answer confidently The question, have I been born again? Holy Spirit, come and do the work that only you can do. Only you can bring the new birth. Only you can bring a right understanding of this word that you inspired. We ask that you would do both of those things this morning. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So four evidences that answer the question, how do I know? How do I know if I've been born again? Evidence number one, you know you've been born again if you embrace Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. Look at the first half of verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, two very important things that I want you to see here. The first is this, if you read this verse carelessly, you might come away from it thinking, oh, great, well, all I need to do is say, I believe in Jesus and I'm good. That was easy, but that's actually careless, because that's not what the verse says. Reading it like that is careless, and reading it like that is how We've resulted with scads of people, especially here in the Bible Belt South, thinking that they're Christians, claiming to belong to Him simply because they believe that Jesus existed. Most likely, they even believe that He died on the cross. But if you stop there, y'all, that's careless. That's careless because the text doesn't simply say everyone who believes in Jesus has been born of God. What does it say? It says everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Jesus who is the Christ. See, Christ is not a last name for Jesus. It's not like Jesus is the first name and Christ is the last name. Christ is a title. And it's a title that represents the sum total of true Christian doctrine. 
It represents everything that answers the questions, well, well, who is Jesus? Why did he come? What did he do when he came? Because, see, to say that he's the Christ says something about his uniqueness. Just even think about the title, Christ, or, or, or from the original language, Christos, which means anointed one. It, it comes from the Hebrew, and, and in Hebrew, in, in English, consonant letters, it's from this word that has three consonants transliterated into English, M and S and H. And so that verb, it's a verb means to smear. So like you would take oil and you would smear it on someone's forehead, maybe even a king that you were anointing for office. Right? That's where that word comes from. That's also where we, can you see there the M and the S and the H? Can we get anything else from that? If we add a few more vowels, how about Messiah? Right is where that comes from. He's the anointed one. And so first and foremost, he's the king. Right? He's the king. He rules and he reigns. And so when we're talking about Christ and we're talking about the uniqueness of who Jesus is, he's the king. Right? He is great David's greater son. He rules and he reigns. But here's part of where the uniqueness comes. Right? He's a king, but he's not just a king. He's also God's Word tells us, a prophet. In his uniqueness as the Christ, he's king, but he's also prophet. So he brings the Word of the Lord to us. That's what prophets do. He's a messenger. Y'all, but there were lots of prophets. How is Jesus unique as a prophet? He's unique as a prophet because he's the messenger and the message. No other prophet could claim that. He himself is the message. He is the final word of the Lord. What he would accomplish in his life, death, and resurrection is the very message that God wants to communicate to us. That's pretty unique. He's king, he's prophet. But he's also priest. And he's not just any priest. He's our great high priest. And he's better than any great high priest that we had ever known before. Because all those great high priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could offer sacrifices for ours. But Jesus had no sin. So what does that mean? If he had no sin... Well, it means that he didn't need to sacrifice for his own sins. He could be the sacrifice for our sins once and for all. So he's not just the priest. He's the priest and the sacrifice. The once and for all final sacrifice. The lamb without spot or blemish or stain. Slain for the sins of the world. He's prophet and he is priest and he is king. As the Christ, he is unique. Even among those three roles, there's uniqueness. Because there were, there were lots of kings. There were lots of prophets. There were lots of priests. There were a few men who held two of those roles at the same time. No one ever held all three. 
except for the Lord Jesus. Jesus who is the Christ. The absolutely unique Son of God. That's the Jesus that John is saying, if you've believed in him, if you've believed that he is all of that, that he is the Christ and all that that represents, all the uniqueness that that entails, if you believe that, you've been born again. If you believe all that he is and all that he's done, you've been born again. Now, that's the first thing that we've got to be careful with this first one. Okay? Here's the second thing. Believing that Jesus is the Christ is a consequence of the new birth and not a cause. Believing all that is a result of having been born again, not a cause of your new birth. You remember the cart and the horse from last week if you were here? Works just like that for this as it did for the same thing last week. The new birth is the horse. It pulls behind it the cart of believing that Jesus is the Christ. You've got to keep that horse in front of the cart. It doesn't work the other way around. Right? We believe because we have been born again. We believe because something has already happened to us. And every single one of those texts, go back and look up all those texts, every single one of those texts backs that up and bears that out. Believing is an indicator that something else has already happened. So the first evidence, if you freely embrace Jesus, the Christ, as he's offered in the gospel, you've been born again. Number two, you know you've been born again if you love God and other Christians. So now let's look at the second half of verse one and also verse two. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Now, one half of this is a no-brainer, right? If we've been born again, it only makes sense that we would love the one who caused us to be born again. Right? The, the one who begat us, to use King James language. Right? That just makes sense. If he's given us the new birth, if he's made us alive together with Christ, if he's caused us to be born again, it makes sense that uh, we would love him for that. But it's the other half of this that trips us up a bit. And it trips us up a bit because it's hard. And this is where a lot of that, the, the overlap comes in because we've already seen this in lots of these other passages how our love for other folks who've been born again is evidence that we've been born again. Even last week, the, the last verse of the passage that we looked at last week, 1 John 3, uh, verse 10, by this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Well, how is it evident? Whoever doesn't practice is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you don't love your sister or your brother in Christ, not born again. 
period. Black and white. We saw it also when we were in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. No sincere brotherly love? No loving one another earnestly? Not born again. We've got it obviously in today's passage in 1 John, but also right before, the couple of verses right before chapter 5, the last two verses of 4, verse 20 and 21, is also equally pointed. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So it gets mentioned so often and it gets tied in so often with being born again. Not because it's just a handy thing to tack on to, well, if you're born again, you better act like this. That's not it at all. It's mentioned so often because it's the only logical thing that born-again people can do. It's the only logical thing that we can do because if our daddy causes us to be born again, we're born into his family. And we now automatically become sisters or brothers to everyone else who's in the family. Anyone else who's been born again. This love of God and love for your brother and sister is inextricably linked here. They're absolutely dependent upon each other. You cannot do one without the other. And so look at verse 2 again. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Now, That might seem backwards to you. It did to me initially because I would have expected it to be the other way around. By this we know that we love God when we love his children. But that's not what John says here. He switches it because the only way that we can love our brothers and sisters in a way that is meaningful and in a way that has eternal value is if we are loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, I cannot love my neighbor as myself without having first loved God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because if I'm not doing that, then all I can offer to my brothers and sisters is sappy, sentimental, perhaps emotional, greeting card kind of love. But that's not what's going on here. John's talking about real love. He's talking about love that flows from from a commitment and that is not merely emotional. See, if we had read 1 John from start to finish, which probably wouldn't be such a bad idea, so do that sometime, we would have read through chapter 3. 
in this section that John has here on loving one another. And, and three verses just to, to highlight for you. First uh, John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love. Right? Here's, here's what we're talking about when we say you've got to love. John wants to define it for you. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That just doesn't even make sense, does it? Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That's the kind of love that's expected. That's the kind of love with which we will love one another if we've been born again. And if we have the love for God that results in that kind of love for our brothers and sisters, bank on it. You've been born again. Evidence three. You know you've been born again if you gladly obey God's commands. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So for you this morning, here's a question. Is obedience a burden, or is it a delight? Boys and girls, is obeying mom and dad... A delight? Or is it a burden? Now this is a different question than to ask if it's hard or if it's easy. That's not the question. That's a different question. The question is, is obedience a burden or is it a delight? So apparently, John is saying that evidence of being born again is love for God that's linked to love for others that's linked to obedience to God's commands. And then he throws in this extra little tidbit. It's not burdensome. It's not burdensome. Now we can look at burdensome in a couple of different ways. One aspect of it would be impossibility, right? If you've been asked to do something and it is impossible, well, that's a burden. One reason that God's commands are burdensome for the one who has not been born again is that they're impossible. You you can't do it if you're dead on the inside. You're not going to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're not going to love your neighbor as yourself, especially in the sacrificial way that John has already described here in chapter 3. It's impossible. You can't do it. You can't do it if you don't have God's Spirit, His powerful, enabling Spirit inside of you, helping you. So that's one aspect of burdensome. But there's another aspect... of of burdensome being the opposite of delightful. 
someone who's been born again. Y'all, there's something in the new birth that changes how we view God and consequently how we view His commands. Because if we're not born again, then God, quite often, well, He's just a buzzkill, right? He's just trying to make sure that we don't have any fun. If you look at the things that He said, hey, don't do these things. What a killjoy. These rules are just raining on our parades. But to the one who's been born again, now all of a sudden we see him as, as all wise and all loving. And we see a good father who's not trying to rain on our parade, but a good father who's trying to protect us. A good father who's got our very best interests at heart. And so his ways, his commands, his laws, well, they're meant to protect me. They're meant to help me. They're meant to guide me, keep me from harm, to keep me from heartache. That's what he's doing. That's why they're not burdensome anymore. Because I see a little bit of what he's trying to do there. He's trying to help me. He's trying to protect me. Even if they're not easy, because they're not, they can at least be a delight because I see what he's up to. I see what he's trying to keep me from, to bless me with. They're a, they're a delight, y'all, because I know that they spring from his heart of love. Seeing and understanding that. Seeing God as He is, seeing His law for what it is, now that's a supernatural miracle in and of itself. To go from seeing Him as cosmic killjoy to good, protecting Father, that took a miracle. That took the miracle of the new birth. And so if you see God like that, if you see His laws like that and not as burdensome, You've been born again. Evidence four. You know you've been born again if you resist temptation because of the gospel's transforming power. Now this is going to take a little more explaining, but it's worth it, I promise. Verses four and five. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, you need to see the link here because this overcomes the world almost seems a little out of the blue here. Where did that come from? All of a sudden, you've overcome the world. All right, so love God, love others who've been born of God, obey out of delight and not as a burden. And in doing those things, it shows that you've overcome the world. Well, what is that about? How did the world get thrown in here all of a sudden? Well, apparently, and this should come as no surprise, there are forces out there. There are forces in the world that would keep us, that would hinder us from doing all of these things that it says born-again folks will do. Loving God. Loving each other sacrificially, wholeheartedly. Obeying His commands 
out of a sense of delight rather than burden. Y'all, there are forces out there at work keeping us from doing that. And wouldn't you know it, John's already mentioned that too in this letter. So we're going to back up to chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He's already mentioned these forces. I think this is what is being overcome here when he talks about overcoming the world. Verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. All right. So this is what we're up against. If we're seeking to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we're seeking to love other Christians as we love ourselves, if we're seeking to obey God's commands out of delight, we've got all these, this other column of forces fighting against that. We've got fleshly desires and, and cravings. We've got covetous desires. We've got desires for all the stuff that we don't have but that we want. And then we've got boastful pride about all the stuff that we do have. Folks, those three things there on the right will kill the things on the left in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. They'll wreck all of our attempts to do those things. But the one who's been born of God has overcome the world has overcome the forces at work here. So let's figure this out because you may look at this little phrase, overcome the world, and you might think, all right, let's do this thing. Let's hunker down. I'm going to be an overcomer. I'm going to live that elusive, victorious Christian life. Okay? But it's not as much about being a victorious person. It's not as much about being an overcomer as it is about being the recipient of overcoming power. About being the recipient of victorious power for the Christian life. And that's not just semantic. It's actually a big deal. Because the secret here is not found in you and it's not found in me. It's found in the power that's been made available to us. It's The secret's in the power that we have received. The power that comes to us in the new birth. When He's caused us to be born again by this imperishable seed of His Word. He's caused us to be born again when He's put His Spirit down inside of us. Ezekiel 36. In the new birth, these forces are overcome. The new birth severs the root of these worldly and fleshly desires and cravings. Because being born again shows how vastly superior Jesus is to anything else. It shows us how beautiful He is as He's presented in the Gospel. And it causes everything else to pale in comparison. That is what causes us to overcome. And note how it happens. 
How does the overcoming happen? Note it very well. Underline it in verse 4. What is the victory? Our faith. Our faith is the victory. Not our striving, not our trying, not our being disciplined. It's our faith. It's our believing, our trusting that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we're back where we started, right? Verse 1, it was believing that He's the Christ. And saying here in verse 5 that we believe that He's the Son of God is essentially the same thing. It's not a different thing. It's our faith in the gospel, in the sum total of who Jesus is and what He's done. That is the victory. That is what changes and transforms us. And this is where we sink or swim. Right here. Because if we look at this little overcoming the world business and we think that we can do it, y'all, we're doomed. But if we look at it and say, ooh, gosh, I could never do that. But... The Spirit who's now inside of me. This gospel that both saves and transforms. Oh, there's hope. There's hope in that. And we got to cling to this, y'all, because let me tell you this the overcoming is not instant. I'm not going to bore you with another grammar lesson this week, but overcome is mentioned a couple of times in verses 4 and 5. One is in kind of a past tense of we have overcome, and the other is very much in the present tense of overcomes, present tense, overcoming right now. So it's one of those things that's already been assured of happening, but it's still being worked out in the details. Y'all, it's not instant. It's day by day and it comes in fits and starts. And so we better be trusting in the power that is ours through the new birth and not whatever we think we got on our own. If you want any proof of that or any sort of little example, just consider the very thing that John highlights here. Because he's really only mentioned one command here in all of this, you've got to obey God's commands. You've got to do it in a sense that's not burdensome. It's loving each other. Right? That's the one that gets mentioned over and over again. Our love for those who've also been born again. And so I can't think of another one where the failings of that might not be so obviously in our face all the time. Because it's hard, y'all. It's hard. And so here's where it goes back to believing not in Jesus in general, but believing that He's the Christ. Believing that He's King and prophet and priest. That He's the priest and the sacrifice who Himself loved perfectly because we couldn't. And so where His record of having loved perfectly stands in the place of our own. That's what we place our faith in. That's where the overcoming happens is to know that, we've, that we're accepted and that we are changed 
because of his perfect record in our behalf and his sacrifice for us because of where we couldn't. And so continuing to believe and trust in all of who he is and all of what he's done, if you're doing that, you've been born again. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you take these four evidences and for many this morning, I pray that you would confirm and you drive into the solid ground like a stake. Yes, I can see the proof. I can see the evidence. I know I've been born again. But Father, if there are those in our midst this morning who look at these evidences and say, uh-oh, Lord, I pray that they'd run to Christ for the very first time. And to lay down all their efforts that they've been putting faith in. To lay down their attempts and their striving that they've been trusting in. And to take up and to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is perfected for all time the obedience and the righteousness that you require and demand. Oh Lord, would you grant the faith that we need to trust that as if it's our own. Meet us at the table. Feed us and nourish us, we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.